Hey everyone, it's Jim Surik. Welcome back. Appreciate you joining me in these crazy times. In these crazy times, I've received a lot of messages, text, email, LinkedIn on trying to do a podcast, you know, one a 101 podcast on digital health. And that's what we're calling this podcast, 101 Digital Health with Dr. Lyle Berkowitz. Dr. Berkowitz is out of the Chicagoland area, and he has been involved with healthcare technology for a long, long time, and uh, he's an active speaker and author on topics such as healthcare innovation, digital health, virtual care, precision medicine, population health, physician adoption, the healthcare startup world, and a lot more. And we all think, and I did, that uh, a lot of this, you know, information technology and digital health and telemedicine probably started maybe in the early mid-2000s. Well, these ideas have been around since the 1960s, and Dr. Berkowitz goes into it a little bit to share how back then they were talking about EMRs, chat boxes, artificial intelligence, analytics, and uh, how it could be used in our healthcare system. And it's just taken us a long time to get there. And unfortunately, the COVID crisis is what is probably going to change the way in which we use healthcare resources in a more impactful way than anything else. And um, there's a lot of good. I know you hear this and we see all this stuff on LinkedIn and all these positive messages and, and you know, we can start to get a little cynical, but when you really look at what we're going to come out of this crisis with is going to be a healthier healthcare system because we have to. Okay, we have a shortage of doctors that using digital health can help in that area of providing access to people that don't have access and using technology in a way that doesn't disrupt a doctor's life but enhances it so that we can attract more doctors or more people to become doctors. And um, and then obviously the best and the brightest that come into medicine will help us all out. So if we can use tools that attract those folks and those people, then the better off we as a society, as a nation, as a world are going to be. So please take a listen to this podcast, listen through the whole thing, because it is really, really informative. And it is a one-on-one type digital health conversation in which I ask questions that were asked of me to ask somebody in um, and who I would be interviewing. So it's, it's simple. It's easy. Um, you're going for a walk. Might as well plug it in. So without further ado, let's get at it. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Medical Sales Nation. It's Jim Surik here, and uh, I'm really excited about this podcast because with all the craziness that's going on out there in our healthcare world and all the talk that's happening around telemedicine, digital health, um, and uh, telehealth, what does all this mean? So I'm excited to have Dr. Lyle Berkowitz with us and uh and this is near and dear to my heart because he's in Chicago. He's out of the Northwestern group. Um, so one of the most fantastic healthcare systems in the world and in uh, the state of Illinois. So Dr. Berkowitz is a primary care physician. He's also a healthcare innovator. He's a futurist. 
He's an uh, expert in digital health, and uh, his work really evolves around real-world solutions which improve quality and efficiencies of the healthcare system for patients and physicians. He's the CEO of Back9 Healthcare Consulting and um, was also the chief medical officer of MD Live, one of the nation's largest telehealth medical groups. Um, Dr. Berkowitz, thank you so much for joining us. And if you could just uh, maybe fill in some of the gaps that I've missed about your background and, and what you're doing, and uh, we'll go from there. Uh, great. Thanks for having me, Jim. Uh, I uh, have had a, a varied career. I've been very fortunate. Um, so you can say I'm the, the classic jack of all trades um, and can't hold a single job. Uh, but that's, <laughs> that's common among my kind, right? We're always trying to do something new. But I've been uh, fortunate to sort of be at the intersection of um, medical care, clinical care. I was a primary care physician uh, with my own practice within the Northwestern's medical group uh, for uh, over 20 years. Uh, at the same time, I was a physician executive at Northwestern, uh, focused on IT and informatics, uh, and later on innovation over the past um, dozen years or so. Uh, and outside of Northwestern, I was also involved in a variety of business activities. I've been chief medical officer for several companies, um, both publicly traded and startups, uh, and wound up also starting some companies. I'm currently on the boards of, of two health tech companies, uh, HealthFinch, which is a workflow automation tool, and OneView, which is a patient engagement software for hospitalized patients, uh, and um, currently advise uh, a variety of companies and health systems uh, on what's going on in healthcare, and particularly around digital health, and thinking through um, both today and tomorrow, how can we be innovative uh, to better improve efficiency, quality, satisfaction, the bottom line? Uh, and these days, there's no question, there's a big focus on virtual care, telehealth. Uh, I spent the past two years uh, as chief medical officer at one of the largest telehealth companies in the nation, MD Live. Uh, learned a lot from that. Uh, and um, that, combined with my other experiences, has uh, made it a very busy time for me, actually. Um, I've been donating my time uh, to talking to folks, helping folks, um, including uh, being on the COVID-19 uh, coalition, uh, but also um, spending my time as an advisor consultant uh, to uh, a couple of startups uh, and to health systems. Okay. So you are one busy individual right now, I can imagine. And, um, and it sounds like, and, you know, reading your background and, and the conversation we had earlier this week... You've been involved, obviously, in the technology part of healthcare, and I'm not talking about a new pacemaker, a new image guidance system. I'm, we're really talking about information technologies as it impacts our healthcare system. How did you first, I'm really interested, how did you first get involved with that? Why did you think that was something that the health system needed? Because it, it's really, it's been around a while, but it really hasn't taken off. But now with this COVID crisis, there's a big spotlight on it right now. Uh, yeah, it's always something I've done. I was born and raised, uh, you know, raised in the 80s, you know, born in the 60s. And, you know, we, computers were a part and fabric of my life, you know. So uh, while I'm younger than Bill Gates, you know, that, you know, by the time you know, I was a teenager, we had... Um, yeah, Atari computers and Apple computers, and I was programming. I loved that type of stuff. I got very caught up into it. Was a, a engineer, biomedical engineer, in college, 
and I recognized that I just had an affinity and I uh, understood computers and information technology. Uh, took a course called Informatics about the, the science of information uh, and was intrigued by all of this, you know, was a part of my career, my, you know, my work. I, I remember in college, I uh, got a work-study job in the cafeteria and I was just horrible at it. Like, I, I mean, I spilled more food than any <laughs> single person there. And then fortunately, after two weeks there, I got a, a job as a computer programmer uh, for the head of uh, chemical engineering uh, and wound up having a much better career in, uh, by myself with a computer. Uh, by the time I got to med school, um, I had done a fair amount of programming uh, and uh, was fortunate to meet a mentor and and my uh, essentially boss throughout med school, a guy named Arthur Elstein, who had founded the Society for Medical Decision Making, and he had started the Department of, of Medical Informatics at uh, University of Illinois, where I went to med school. Uh, this was now in the late 80s, uh, but I had found my calling. Uh, I had understood that in this this intersection of technology, computers, and medicine was was where I belonged, and so I was one of the people who realized early in my career. Uh, however, I wasn't the one who invented it. Uh, I was fortunate enough that uh, uh, Dr. Elstein, who was a PhD, knew a guy named Dr. Robert Karinas, uh, who was at Harvard uh, and had a lab uh, basically training PhDs on medical informatics. Um, and he let me come out there as a uh, basically a sub-fellowship. He sponsored me to go out for a couple months during my fourth year in med school. And I recall him pulling out his thesis from when he was in uh, grad school in the 1960s, like the year wow. I was born, showing me uh, his thesis to say, hey, let's decide what you want to work on. And I looked at this and, and still remember to this day, everything we talk about, you know, from electronic medical records um, to, you know, chatbots and artificial intelligence um, and analytics, all of that was spelled out. These guys in the 60s, uh, Bob Greenis, um, Ted Shortliff, uh, um, and many other uh, icons, they knew all this. Um, and I realized early on that it was, it was not about the idea of how to use technology, it was about execution. Uh, and uh, I also realized I wasn't looking to get a PhD in informatics, I was what uh, was, was termed a clinical informaticist. How do you apply all this informatics and cool technology into the day-to-day -day clinical work? Uh, and so you know, I was struck by, you know, early on, I. Uh, I was able to have a, a mentor and be a research assistant to um, a great man and, and a number of folks in med school. And then when I got to residency, I was the computer guy, right? No one else wanted to do it. Uh, so I was the resident who was on the uh, computer committees, uh, helping choose which computer system to use. And by the time I um, started in my medical group, I said, hey, I'd like to be the medical director of IT. And my new bosses said, well, what is that? Why would you want to do that? You're a doctor. And I said, I think it'll be important. This is in the early 90s, uh, mid-90s. And, you know, it's uh, on one hand, you know, I was right. It was important. On the other hand, I certainly thought it would have happened a lot sooner. Uh, I Early in my career, I, I wound up being chief medical officer of a, a, a EMR company uh, based out of Chicago. And you know, was certain that we were just a couple of years away from everybody using electronic medical records. Uh, so I'm a futurist, but not necessarily a great one. I, I maybe am a little overly uh, optimistic sometimes. I've learned to be a little more pragmatic. And virtual care, telehealth, I've done my whole life. I mean, every doctor has to some degree with telehealth. I was using email in the 90s with patients, well before HIPAA was even a, a, an issue. Sure. Uh, and 
always argued to you know, to my group and doctors we should be doing more of this, but yeah, you know, there wasn't a great reimbursement mechanism, um, and it wasn't as clear on how to do it. And uh, there's no question when I joined MD Live, I was able to do it at scale um, across the nation. Um, but it, with the COVID crisis, you know, huge, huge you know, shift, a, a pivot unlike anything we've seen in a matter of, you know, a day, many health systems just decided, you know what, we are going to you know, uh, um, switch majority of our visits, if not all, to virtual care. And so it was a little like Dorothy, you know, clicking her heels. It was, they always had the ability to do it. It was simply um, a, a decision to do it. The technology has always been there to some degree, whether that's phone or, you know, these days is days in, uh, some type of video or even asynchronous care. Uh, and uh, the biggest change had to be uh, socially, culturally, um, inertia, were we ready to make that change? And I think many doctors have found that it's not that hard to do. And many patients love it, right? It's great for them not to have to come in. At the same time, the, probably the most important change was reimbursement mechanism that the uh, CMS and then the commercial payers followed to provide some, if not full parity on reimbursement. Um, and so we've, we've shown we can do it. The genie's out of the bottle, as they say. And, and now we're in a whole new era where I do believe that uh, a big chunk of, of healthcare will be delivered uh, virtually um, moving forward, but that still uh, doesn't solve everything, but it's a, it's a start, and I uh, will talk more about other ideas on where I think we can optimize it. Sure. No, that's great. Thanks. Um, wow, what a, what a background. How uh, fortunate you have been to be able to work with some of these folks and, and get involved. Uh, and so now coming into where we are today, so I hear terms like digital health, then I hear telehealth, and then I hear telemedicine. And I was maybe you can distinguish what all of this means, and then maybe we'll jump into what technology exists. Then there's companies that use technologies. Then there's platforms. I mean, it's kind of confusing, and the audience is, uh, you know, is mainly a medical... Uh, device, pharma, biotech, commercial from the sales and marketing side. And I know I've received a ton of messages on LinkedIn saying, hey, can you do something on this digital health? Because it's it seems to be exciting, but it's confusing. So maybe we can distinguish first digital health, telehealth, telemedicine, what these terms mean. Yeah, and, and by, by all means, there's not a encyclopedia dictionary that explains all of this right now. I will say different people have tried and you'll read different things. I, I will say you know, my quick interpretation is that digital health is a pretty much an umbrella term for anything that involves you know, using technology um, to support healthcare diagnostics and or therapeutics. Um, you know, and so telehealth would be some subset of that. Uh, and uh, we're seeing a, you know, the digital health transformation. What's interesting uh, is that um, a couple years ago, over the past 10 years, we had this idea of chief innovation officers. Um, and innovation can imply a number of things. I, I think about innovation with respect to people, process, and technology, um, you know, from process like human-centered design um, to, of course, a variety of technologies. Um, but really what many of them sort of evolved into were the chief digital officers. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, some of them literally have changed their title 
from chief innovation officer to chief digital officer. I think there's still a place for chief innovation officer, um, but these days, a chief digital officer is usually the one who is in charge of um, the website um, and the uh, mobile app, et cetera. Uh, and that's uh, usually it's consumer facing type of digital health that interfaces with the provider. Uh, separately, a CMIO, Chief Medical Informatics Officer, is usually the one in charge of the electronic medical record system. Uh, and then telehealth might fall under one of those two, where it might be a third uh, person uh, who is the medical director of telehealth, and that maybe falls under you know, the vice president of access, uh, et cetera. It, it's different at different organizations. Um, some people talk about what's the difference between telehealth and telemedicine and virtual care. And again, some folks will stick a, a, a flag in the sand and claim there's a big difference. I'm, uh, I will sort of say that I do think of telehealth and telemedicine as essentially you know, communicating via online methodologies, whereas virtual care is a bit more of an umbrella term that includes both virtual, this telehealth type of, of care, but also automation. So, for example, um, you know, at MD Live and a variety of other telehealth companies, you know, you'll have a front-end chatbot uh, of some sort uh, that collects information, may triage a patient, may even tell the patient, you don't need to see a doctor, you can do home care, or you need to go to an emergency room, or may triage them to do a virtual visit, uh, a telehealth visit online. Um, so I do think these terms are a bit fluid right now. Uh, and uh, like a lot of things, they may, they may solidify in. Some people will claim to you know, be the experts on exactly what they mean. But, um, uh, and some will argue that uh, the whole tele will go away. Uh, we no longer say telebanking or teletravel. Oh, that's you know, true. It's just travel. Right. Um, and it's just care. Uh, and so I think the, the idea of digital therapeutics uh, is is a hot item right now in that and digital diagnostics is which is what can you do with your phone and some software that maybe doesn't involve a doctor or just involves you know, 90% of the work and then you hand it off to a doctor. Uh, I think that will become increasingly important because uh, in the innovation world, we often focus on what problem are you trying to solve? Uh, and what I'd suggest that we're trying to solve as a nation is not how do you replace a 15-minute office visit with a 15-minute video visit? Because um, a lot of times telehealth gets mistaken as just video, but the fact is most telehealth is, is actually phone-based care. Um, uh, but the, really the problem is, is not how do you replace 15 minutes with 15-minute um, uh, increments. It's how do you take care of people and uh, patients, um, particularly ones with routine, repeatable problems. How do you take care of them in this quick, efficient, uh, convenient safe, effective, high quality, low cost way as possible. And when you, and if that's a problem you're solving, you might be replacing a 15 minute office visit. And by the way, two hours of travel associated yeah. with that with a, you know, a five or 10 minute um, chatbot visit and, and maybe no doctor at all, or maybe only one or two minutes of a doctor. And that then starts to say, okay, now we can be efficient. If we can do that, you know, we could potentially um, five or 10x uh, patient panel, how many p patients a doctor can handle because we've started to not just virtualize but automate the process of healthcare. And if we do that well, then we don't have a shortage of doctors in this country. We simply have a shortage of using them efficiently. Uh, and 
when we talk about changing regulations around telehealth, um, you know, the argument I'd make is we have to also talk about the regulations around automation of care, um, because there are a lot of uh, laws that make telehealth a, a bit harder, um, both in terms of reimbursement, uh, in terms of legality. Um, but let's just take the next step and say, in many cases, uh, a computer algorithm can treat sinus infections and UTIs and rashes just as good, if not better, uh, than doctors. Um, routine diabetes, routine hypertension, preventive care, I'd argue most of those can be done by a computer um, you know, with minimal human interaction, and you only need to escalate to the, the human, the, the nurse or the doctor, uh, if someone violates what are pretty standard protocols. You don't need artificial intelligence uh, to treat a sinus infection or UTI. In many cases, it's pretty routine, algorithmic type of rules um, that can adhere. Uh, when one of my company's health things uses um, these type of rules to, to handle um, uh, medication refill requests. And if you play within the rules of getting the refill request, we can use an algorithm to then delegate the work to a um, medical assistant or nurse or pharmacist, depending on how the system's set up. Uh, and by doing that, you know, we save a million minutes of time a week of physician time. Yeah. Uh, and we delegate it, and we actually, we believe, do it in, a, in such a, a higher quality way than maybe asking a physician to spend time on it uh, who may not follow all the protocols specifically. Uh, so that's a type of, of automation aspect I like. I call it my, my sad philosophy uh, to make routine care you know, quick, easy, et cetera. That's how do you simplify, automate, and delegate routine, repeatable care? Um, and that's uh, clinical workflow automation. Some people are calling it RPA, robotic process automation. But I think that will become increasingly important in both the clinical side and, and the back-end side of, of care. Okay. So um, thank you so much. I mean, this, this, is, this is wonderful. So I want to talk a little bit about that so that automation and, uh, you know, UTI or a sinus infection, is that something where a patient would log into a site and describe their symptoms, and as it goes through that algorithm, it'll say, well, it sounds like you have a sinus infection. We're going to order, you know, uh, antibiotics and go pick it up at your local pharmacy. Is it, is it that how it would work? Yes. Yeah. I mean, today what happens is um, there are a number of companies who will um, start with either your symptom, uh, I have pain when I urinate, or your suspected diagnosis, UTI, um, symptom checker versus sort of diagnostic um, sure. um, uh, automator. And then they'll ask a series of questions. Uh, and then they'll, they'll triage you and decide if you need to go to the ER, see a doctor in person, or can do a, a telehealth visit. Um, and in, in the case of doing a telehealth visit, they then may send that information to a doctor in a, in a highly packaged way that actually um, shows them, you know, here's the, um, the clinical history. Um, may stop at that. It may actually suggest, here's the most likely diagnosis, and here's the most likely plan that you would use. Um, it could do that uh, for video or phone or even asynchronous care. There are a co couple companies who do that. And if you do that well, you get a, a pretty you know, efficient process for the patient. You get a well-documented visit based on you know, evidence-based or uh, some type of uh, at least consensus-based guidelines. 
uh, and you minimize the time the doctor has to spend. He's just checking off that everything looks good uh, and can, again, either talk to the patient or in an asynchronous fashion, simply sign off on the note, um, agree with the computer's recommendation, maybe add some more thoughts, um, and then that gets sent to the patient. Yeah, uh, that it looks like you do have a urinary infection. Here's the home treatment, uh, and there's a medication waiting at the pharmacy for you. Yeah. And I do think the next step of that is don't even need the physician in many cases. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we're, we're completely ready for that, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, we weren't ready for virtual care the way we are. And I think as we continue to hit crises in healthcare around shortages and supply demand mismatches, uh, I hope that we'll use the same yeah, ideas that we use around every other industry that it's okay to automate stuff that is is particularly black and white and and quite honestly in some cases artificial intelligence can actually improve the quality um, you know the, the obvious examples will be things like radiology dermatology but again I think even simple urgent care and chronic care can and should be automated as much as virtualized so it, it's really interesting because when uh, these uh, like satellite offices for um, for hospitals were opened. You know they were put in Walgreens, CVS. You know different grocery stores. They're sometimes satellites of hospitals. I thought it was the greatest thing because if I had a sinus infection or an upper respiratory infection, if I called my doctor, I'd have to wait a number of days, mm -hmm. right? And it's like you can't. So I would go there thinking that was the greatest thing in the world. But I still had to go. I usually had to wait half an hour, mm -hmm. 45 minutes. This is the next step in almost taking that out of the picture by just going, once again, back to your, your, your provider and bringing incredible efficiencies to the marketplace and to the patient and to the doctors. And, this, uh, and to me, it seems, and I don't want to speak for you as a doctor, but any, any way that we can make your lives easier and more effective and efficient to spend more time with patients delivering care, the happier you're going to be. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, yeah, a couple thoughts. Yeah, uh, sure. One, um, you're right. Uh, I actually wrote an article, I swear I did, in 2007. You can, we can find it online. Okay. Um, in which I said exactly what you just said, which is that the, the minute clinics and the, you know, the, the retail clinics uh, we're simply a middleware stepping stone um, because everything they did, we could we could do majority of that by virtual care. Interesting. And that, again, I predicted in a matter of years, they will be all gone and replaced with virtual care. Um, and that the it was a great opportunity for um, doctors and health systems to take advantage of the increased need and desire for convenient care. Now, again, that didn't happen, um, but partly because there is such a demand that you know, it was whether people go to retail care, or go online, um, you know, there's almost an, feels like an unending demand for minor urgent care. Um, but uh, I, I do think we've seen a sort of uh, a rise and fall of the retail clinics, um, more so because they just weren't financially viable. Uh, it was uh, because of the low compensation with those type of visits, it was a, a lot to spend sure. to have a physical presence. I think there might be some hybrid where you have a physical location, but everything's done online. Um, uh, but these days, quite honestly, you don't even need that. You can really do most of this online. And within the next few years, 
again, me with my predictions, I'm going to suggest in the next two to three years, our mobile devices will be able to do almost everything we could do in person. They can get your vital signs. I've seen um, you know, early um, versions that can check your pulse, blood pressure, temperature, oxygen level, simply from the camera on your phone. They can use the audio uh, microphone on your phone to listen to your heart and lungs, listen to your voice and if you're coughing and actually diagnose based on that. Uh, take a picture of your rash and use AI um, to diagnose and that. Take a picture of your eye and actually diagnose diabetes or other um, uh, ophthalmological uh, issues. So I do think that we are getting to the point where we don't need a physical space to do most of what we do. We don't even need a doctor in many cases. And then to your latter stage, I, you know, I often, a trend that I've had in my life has always been around creating you know, tools that improve the, the life for doctors. Because if you can do that, uh, you'll get you know, happy doctors will equal healthier patients because yeah. you can save time um, they can focus on what they should be focusing on and bring the joy back to medicine. So I often lead when I, when I look at all my companies as to, in companies that come to me, I say, how does this make life easier for the doctor? Because yeah. if you do that, um, start lead with that and then put in the stuff around quality and other stuff later. But that's how you get adoption of technology. A lot of people will say, oh, doctors, they're resistant to technology. That's not the case at all. We were the first to get pagers and cell phones and MRIs. We love technology. We're gadget people. We just don't like technology that slows us down. Um, no one would if anyone went to anyone's job and said, hey, you now have to use this technology. You have to pay for it and it will slow you down uh, and take you away from what you love. Um, why would people do that? Yeah. It's amazing that we've gone doctors to do as much as they have. Yeah, no, it's true. It's Well, in, you know, my entire career has been... Um, in the on the on the device side, you know, uh, surgeon doctor preference items, um, dealing with the healthcare system, um, or, or I shouldn't say the healthcare system, the hospital system, and, and getting products in, and it it comes to a time where a new widget is just an, a ten percent improvement over a current widget. Doctors are more apt now than ever, and I've been doing this a long time to say, it's not worth my time to learn a new product. Um, that's only going to maybe have a 10% improvement in something. It's not that great, and it'll take me time to use it. I look at this digital health piece of what's happening, you know, this umbrella term of digital health, and I'm truly excited for our healthcare system because like you just said, which is where I wanted to go with this, the, di the digital therapeutics um, and the digital diagnostics, and you talked about rechecking your pulse, oxygen levels, you're looking at a rash, um, your blood pressure with these remote devices, whether it's on our mobile phone or something else. And there are companies creating this out there, but it just seems because of this crisis that someone like myself is just learning about this. Um, is it been in the weeds because there hasn't been reimbursement, so there's not a lot of excitement about it because how am I going to make money on this as a venture capitalist, or, um, or is it something else? But um, I'm just wondering where you see this headed now that this big fat flashlight has been put on this telehealth and what can actually be done? Yeah, I'd, I'd put it into two buckets. And bucket one is stuff that from a technical perspective and a regulatory perspective has been available in some form or fashion for years. 
um, you know, maybe a little better and flashier right now. Uh, and the big issue has been a combination of reimbursement and just inertia. Um, so things like chatbots, I mean, the essence of that has been around since the 60s. Uh, there's research done, you know, by folks like uh, Warner Slack, a famed doctor out of uh, Mass General, I believe. And he, he showed in the 60s that patients actually liked and were more honest at answering a computer's questions than they were answering a, a, oh a doctor's questions. Again, not a new concept. Uh, people come out and they think that they've invented the concept of a chatbot, not new at all. But um, it's become easier and more ubiquitous. Everyone has a mobile phone now, et cetera. Um, but the issue is um, they, uh, you have to figure out the use cases. I, yeah, I, I know a company called uh, ClickSoft uh, with a Q that you know, does a lot of chatbot technology, and there are many others out there, uh, has uh, the ability to author what makes sense. And what makes sense right now are things that collect information ahead of a visit to prepare for the visit. Um, what uh, does not make sense yet is to do the whole visit, automate the whole visit, because there's not a reimbursement mechanism out in the fee-for-service environment. Sure. So buck, bucket number one is we can do it right now. I mean, telehealth, for goodness sakes, we've been doing since the dawn of time. The first telephone call, Alexander Graham Bell called his assistant for a telehealth consult, right? He said, hey, Watson, I've, I've burned myself. Come over here and help me. <laughs> um, the concept of a doctor using a phone is not new at all. Um, and even video is, is relatively easy. Uh, it just has become more ubiquitous because of technology. And we finally have maybe some reimbursement mechanisms for it. Bucket two are things that re either the technology is not quite there or there's some regulatory barriers um, on top of perhaps reimbursement barriers. And that's things like using your phone uh, uh, camera to do a blood pressure. There are techno technically we're getting better at that but it will require FDA approval. Sure. Digital diagnostics and true digital therapeutics do require some level of FDA approval and people are still maneuvering how to do that. As that gets done, next will become, well, how do we get reimbursed for it? Again, a fee in a fee-for-service environment, um, if it can improve the efficiency of a visit, that makes sense. If it actually obviates the need for a physician, then uh, we have to figure out how to get reimbursed for it. A value-based model, capitated model, yeah. It's going to make a ton of sense, uh, and we'll and, and we'll um, get very quickly busy there. But in those cases, the technology, artificial intelligence, etc., may need to get a little better, and then the FDA um, the regulatory issues will have to improve. And then state laws have you know, and federal laws may have to be reviewed. Um, for example, asynchronous care, where you fill out a form and a, and a doctor types and, and sends you a message back, that's actually not allowed via a number of states, uh, via something called the internet prescribing rule, which doesn't let you prescribe medications, simply based on a patient filling out a form. Mm. Now, those rules are a bit archaic, were developed 20 years ago um, to try and avoid um, unscrupulous people from giving people out Viagra based on filling out three, um, piece, you know, three questions. But these days, you might ask you know, 10, 20 questions, use artificial intelligence and, uh, and support a lot of that, and doctor um, legitimately reviews everything, uh, and yet there's still laws uh, at the state level that are um, making asynchronous care um, uh, either illegal and or um, in the gray zone that, that is, uh, is difficult for doctors to know what to do. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's ever-evolving, and obviously with the government involved, whether it's the 
the FDA and CMS and reimbursement coming together with that technology, it's it's going to be a process for sure. Um, last, I know I know your time is valuable. One of the things that I, I'm trying to come to grips with when I hear about these companies um, uh, like MD Live and then Teladoc and um, see Teladoc just Doctors on Demand, Doctors and, on Demand, and right? Amwell, yeah. So I'm wondering, okay, and then let's. I'm going to throw this out because we're we're recording this on Skype. Is um, okay. Skype's a platform in which you and I can have a conversation. If we turn the video on and I'm your patient, we could have a more uh, robust conversation. But that's a platform. And I, I'm, I'm trying to understand where these companies are coming in and enhancing that platform in which reimbursement is going to be brought in. And where and do these companies have diagnostic capabilities or is that a third-party player that's giving or licensing the technology to these companies to implement? That's a lot, but that's what I'm trying to get my head around. And, and it's understandable that's confusing. Healthcare has made it very confusing because what you have are, there's pure technology companies. They're companies simply um, provide the technology and framework and platform. You know, your Epics and Allscripts and Cerner. They provide an EMR platform. They sell it to medical groups and doctors and who use it. Um, and then you've got um, you know, folks like the, the telehealth vendors you mentioned who all really you know, have a combination that they have their own tech proprietary technologies um, and they can sell that technology to other medical groups that they wish and some do that more than others. But the vast majority of their revenue actually comes from providing medical services. So they are sort of a hybrid of a technology company and a tech-enabled services company or even really a medical group. And uh, more specifically in the telehealth uh, world, what you have are um, they are all set up to have both a core company um, uh, that does the technology and the practice management, and then separately, due to a variety of state legal reasons, they have a separate physician group that is affiliated uh, so that that physician group is the one who uses the technology to fulfill the contracts that they might have with employers, with payers, uh, with others uh, to take care of patients. And so uh, when you look at the revenue of these companies, uh, it's often going to be via providing medical services to some degree um, using their tech uh, technology. And so um, there's a reason why it, see, it feels confusing. In each of these, um, they may have completely built their own technology. They may have some of their technology and they license some other technology. So, um, you know, one of them might use Zoom or VidYO uh, or Cisco, et cetera, for their um, the video portion of their technology. They might uh, use a different technology for e-prescribing um, or um, in the future for doing diagnostics or some type of artificial intelligence, uh, but they'll build it into their platform. Uh, I think we'll see um, uh, each of them uh, being a bit of an ecosystem where they may um, partner with a variety of other of these digital therapeutics and diagnostic companies okay. and use them in a variety of ways. So it's a a bit of a you know a, a weed that's growing out in a variety of ways, but uh, I would look at these companies as a combination of platform plus a, a provider group, a medical group, um, and uh, and and in most cases uh, the big revenue comes from providing medical services, um, but for some of them you know there may be an increasing amount from providing some type of 
technology platform as well for others. And then, of course, we have the EMR vendors who are all trying to do that as well as a variety of companies who are only selling the technology and platform to doctors. So it's a, it's a wild west out yeah, there. Yeah, right? it sounds like it. It's, it's something that, it's just like anything, you, you, this new market's exploding and um, investments are being made trying to heal our healthcare system and then it'll shake out in the end um, as it consolidates and it figures out the most effective and efficient way to deliver this. So one last question on, on this is that um, as a doctor, like um, MD Live or, or Teladoc, do I, as an individual doctor, do you contact Teladoc to, and say, I'd like to use your services or how does that work? I'm just wondering because I have a... Um, I have a friend, he's a family practitioner, and obviously the practices are, are, are kind of slow right now. He's actually busy because he's reached out to his patients and said, I'm available through telemedicine, and he's just using a Zoom, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm, I'm wondering, okay, well, if he's using Zoom, why do I need to sign up for Teladoc? I'm wondering what the benefit is for, for me as an individual doctor. Uh so the reason why a doctor would want to sign up with one of the, join one of the medical groups, um, the Teladocs, Doctors on Demand, MB Live, yeah. et cetera, uh, is simply if they wanted more volume, if they had extra time uh, and they wanted a high volume of telehealth. Uh, so, you know, a couple months ago, it made a little more sense. These days, if you have your own practice, you're probably pretty busy, but it's possible a lot of primary care doctors um, are seeing a significant decrease in visits overall across the board, even though they may be doing 70% of the visits might be telehealth right now, their total volume of visits is by many reports down 25 or more percent. Uh, So they may just need to supplement their income somehow, particularly important if they're a private doctor. Now, if they're part of a large health system, legally, it's unlikely that they can actually join these groups. Okay. Um, They usually are, have, you know, basically... Uh, non-competes built into their, um, it, because they're part of a, a larger group. But if their larger group put them on furlough or has cut back their time, uh, they may allow them to work with some of these online groups. Uh, it, but a s- whole separate bucket is doctors who want to get off the you know, out of the office. They decided they're going to close down their office and they're just going to do online care. Uh, in those cases, they will need to work with one of these partners and sign up. Um, and those Doctors who really want to do it as part of their career usually are going to get multiple state licenses and dedicate, you know, 20, 40 hours or more a week to just telehealth. Um, so we usually found there were a couple of types of doctors. There were sort of the young, uh, busy doctors who wanted to pay back their student loans. They had a full-time job during the day, and then they would, uh, nights and weekends, they would work online with us to, to try and just get some extra money. Sure. And then there were doctors who are sort of you know, middle or end of their career who want to cut back their regular clinic, maybe to half time and do half time online. And then there were doctors, you know, mid to end of their career who just said, I'm done with clinic. I just want to be a telehealth doctor. Um, and it gives them a lot of flexibility. I remember one doctor who, uh, he, he liked to show horses. He had horses. So he would work with his horses in the morning, um, do telehealth in the afternoon. Interesting. Uh, and he could stay on his ranch. He didn't have to go anywhere. And he actually showed, he went around the nation showing his horses. So he could do it anywhere. Another doctor who had an RV and just traveled the nation, visiting state parks, et cetera, uh, and 
didn't matter where he was, he could do telehealth from anywhere and he would spend you know, four to eight hours a day doing telehealth and spend the rest of his time with his wife and um, traveling across the country. Okay. So um, I, th- I know we got about five more minutes. Um, I want to ask a question about reimbursement. CMS came out, obviously, with this crisis and opened up uh, telehealth to, to you and your peers to be able to use to get paid to do it. I know it's supposedly temporary. Do you, do you believe it's going to stay temporary, or do you think they're going to extend it for a number of years until they work out the details? You're, um, you're the, the futurist, so trying to understand what might or might not happen in the next year with that. Uh, so, yeah, what you're talking about is uh, CMS um, basically said, we will pay um, for tele- yeah, uh, video and telephone visits with Medicare patients. Um, and we will pay at parity. We'll pay similar to um, if they come into the office based on your documentation. Um, and that's great. Uh, and then that also led the um, commercial payers to follow suit. Uh, however, it wasn't as clear. So do I think CMS will continue? Yes. All signs point to yes. Um, combination of, uh, I think this COVID issues, particularly for the elderly, will continue for easily a couple of years. Okay. Um, and I think uh, Seema Verma has been a huge advocate for telehealth, uh, and so this is something that I think they sort of wanted to do, and this uh, made it easy for them to do. And I think it's it's the new new, um, and it's actually better, um, easier, um, more convenient care for an elderly population who often has trouble coming into the office um, and uh, will benefit from this. And the the issue is just you have to still it's not you can't bill a level three office visit based on a two minute you know sure. one minute phone call you still have to document appropriately. And uh, we will have to figure out how to do it well. Um, but I think that will continue. I think the commercial players are still struggling. Uh, not you know, some of, Most of them have followed suit, but it's a little unclear. Are they just paying for video visits, also phone visits? How about asynchronous visits? Um, shouldn't they just be paying for care? I think even now in today's world, there's a lot of confusion on this. I've been on a number of calls and talked to a number of folks and people are interpreting it differently. I think we need to get clarification even now and today. And I do think it will continue. I think the genie's out of the bottle. Patients love it. Doctors are getting used to it. Uh, and it's the right thing to do. It's been too long coming. Um, and uh, I think we'll see a significant shift in how many people actually go into the doctor's office. I remember um, with MD Live, we would often hear um, positive comments from patients saying, yeah, I loved, of course, how fast and easy this was, but I also appreciate that I didn't have to go into the doctor's office because there's a bunch of sick people there, and I don't like, I don't want to get exposed to them. They literally said this, and and this is well before COVID. These are in the past two years. They knew, they knew that um, going into a room with a bunch of sick people was the best way to get sick. Yeah, uh, exactly. and they liked the fact that they don't have to, particularly if it was for a routine non-sick type of issue. So they appreciated that even then, and and. Now I think there'll be a huge paranoia about going into a doctor's office. Yeah. So I was going to ask you as the last question when we close this up, what, any any wild prediction you have for a year from now on what we're going to see versus what we're seeing today when it comes to the this umbrella of digital health? Uh, yeah. Well, I, I think we'll we will see that this is there's no going back. Um, it's uh, I've used the analogy before, as have others, about blockbuster versus Netflix. You know, at some point, Blockbuster sat around saying that um, we are what people want. 
the problem we're solving is, you know, you easy access to come in. People like to touch and feel our the you know the different types of materials that we have. Talk to people in the etc. But again, this gets back to what I said earlier. What problem are you solving? And when hospitals and medical groups put up a bunch of clinics and say, um, we've made this convenient for people to come in, um, and you think the problem you're solving is having a physical space, that's not the problem that patients have. Patients have a medical issue. They want taken care of as quickly and easily as possible. They look at every other part of their life, banking, travel, um, you know, and uh, buying a car and essentially Almost everything has a major online component, a major self-service component that reduces costs, improves efficiency, 24 by 7 care, and they only need to actually go in and see someone when there's something particularly abnormal going on. Uh, so I do think that we'll see not quite a full um, Netflixing of doctor's offices, but we will see a huge shift of doctors doing more and more online care. Uh, and only reserving the inpatient and face-to-face -face care for those who need something um, significantly, um, either a significant amount of time, personal attention, uh, lab work, et cetera. Um, but over the next couple of years, between um, the ability to probably do a variety of lab work from home with a finger stick, uh, from using our mobile devices um, to do diagnostics, um, there simply won't be a reason they have to go in and see the doctor nearly as much. Uh, and uh, many patients don't have easy access to a doctor. I think we sometimes forget, you know, probably less than 50% of the nation have a, a truly good relationship with a primary care doctor. And those who don't, uh, I think, are going to be fine with um, having their doctor as an online virtual doctor. And in fact, not even having a doctor. Uh, I think that piece of automation you know, we'll again, maybe not in two years, but over the next couple of years, we'll see uh, more and more self-service, more and more automation of care. Uh, and so you only wind up seeing the doctor maybe as often as you see a travel agent uh, or, or the vice president of the bank, uh, only yeah. for uh, pretty big, large reasons um, and not on a regular basis like we do now. Yeah. Well, listen, this has uh, been very, very informative. I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to make time for the Medical Sales Nation. How, I mean, this is really informative. Obviously, you're heavily involved in um, the progression to healing our healthcare system through technology. How can people listening to this follow you, whether it's on Twitter, if it's your uh, blog? Um, what's the best way they can uh, keep up to date with some of your thoughts on the, on the uh, evolving digital healthcare community? Uh, you know, they, uh, one, uh, I have a website, www.drlyle.com, um, that just sort of has some general information, some of my favorite blogs and, and my Twitter feed. And then definitely follow me on LinkedIn, um, uh, Lyle Berkowitz, yeah, Dr. Lyle on LinkedIn. Um, I um, probably post a couple times a day on stories with some comments on them, and then yeah, I'm going to be increasingly posting some blog thoughts uh, as well. Um, but that's uh, definitely a good way to, uh, to follow my thinking and, and uh, what I'm working on. All right. Well, everybody, Medical Sales Nation, make sure you follow Dr. Berkowitz because uh, this train's not stopping and it's just going to get more exciting over the, at least over the next 10 years, <laughs> that's for sure. It so, is. In innovators rejoice. This is, uh, as they say, we don't want to let a good crisis go to waste. This has a lot of you know, negative impact, but 
the positive impact on the healthcare system, it's going to, it's a tough change, but we've needed to pull the bandaid off for a while, so to speak. And uh, I agree, uh, Jim, I appreciate what you're doing because um, we have to evolve uh, to survive. Yeah. Well, with that, um, I will let it go. Can't say anything better than that. So medical sales nation until next time, hang tough.